we're in our last week of our series of the gospel-centered life. And uh, before we uh, commence with that, let me just tell you about a couple things coming on the next two weeks. Uh, next week is our all-church prayer gathering. We've done one of these before, and uh, I was really blessed by it. I, I was so encouraged by it. And so I hope that uh, you'll come back next week, and I'm going to try to promote this uh, via a couple different uh, means, let people know that we're going to be doing this. Our our uh, students are going to be joining us next week, so that's going to be fun. We've um, we've done this before. I've done this before in years past, where the students come and you know they're in in our small groups as we pray together. And I know it's a sweet time. It's sweet to hear them pray. It's sweet for them to pray with us and and then learn in some way, you know, how to pray uh, better, differently. So uh, please uh, plan on coming out for that. And then um, and then after that, we're starting a new series called Redeeming Marriage, which will be uh, team taught as well. And, uh, you know, anyone who's been married knows that it's, uh, it's a blessing. It's, a, it's one of the greatest joys of my life. It's also work. It's a challenge. It takes effort and uh, prayer and, and sacrifice. And so we're going to try to look at, I think it's, I have to look at the schedule. Maybe it's eight weeks, eight week schedule on redeeming marriage uh, based on the book by Paul David Tripp called, uh, What Did You Expect? Redeeming the Realities of Marriage. So we will use that as a resource, but then also supplement that with, uh, of course, our own study. Uh, tonight, again, we're going to wrap up the series on the gospel-centered life with a discussion on forgiveness. And certainly, uh, it it's obvious that uh, a gospel-centered life is characterized by a life of forgiveness. And uh, we all know that an unwillingness to forgive causes all kinds of problems, doesn't it? Emotional problems, physical problems, relational problems, spiritual problems, psychological problems, you can go on and on. I got a text uh, about a week and a half ago from my dad and um, never really had a relationship with him, although we've over the years maybe talked uh, once a year at Christmas. And uh, he texted me and said, I want to come down and see one of Luke's games. In fact, I'd like to come down uh, on Tuesday. So this was yesterday. Um, I said, no, we'd absolutely love that. We'd love to have you for dinner and go to the game with us. So they did that. And uh, my, my dad and his uh, wife, and we're sitting across the table from them, and he revealed to us, I mean, Janine and me, that his two of his siblings, his sister and his brother, have not talked for 10 years. Now, I had no idea this, this had happened, but apparently... My dad's sister, my aunt, had posted a picture on Facebook that my dad's brother, my uncle, really objected to and, uh, and would not forgive her. And so for 10 years, they've not talked because of a simple post on Facebook. And we know this, the, the sort of uh, the agony this can cause and, and the, the havoc it can wreak in so many areas of our life. So we're going to look at this area of forgiveness. And um, uh, we're, we're going to see, and you know, we've talked a little bit about it before when we were looking at the Lord's Prayer, particularly that phrase where uh, Jesus says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And then the last kind of warning of that prayer, which was Jesus saying, if you don't forgive others, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you. So we talked about that. Uh, but tonight what I want to do is kind of, and this is a lot of material, but I'm, I'm trying to condense it into uh, a manageable amount where we're going to look at a theology of forgiveness a definition of forgiveness, you might say, and then how that applies to us in our, our lives. And I'm going to do something I should never do, uh, and I realize this already, but I'm going, to, I'm going to ask a lot of questions that I won't answer. In other words, I'm going to create a lot of tension. But any good preacher, teacher uh, knows how to create tension. In fact, I, uh, I had several people say to me uh, after Sunday's message, they said, you know, that thing with you and Janine, you know, going to New York City and getting this big fight, like, 
what was that all about, and, and, and how did you resolve that? And, and so I'm, I, that's the whole thing. I'm not going to answer that. That's for a different sermon. Right now, I'm just creating the tension. And so I'm going to create some tension tonight, so you have to bear with me. But I will say this in my defense. You know, the greatest teacher of all time was also the greatest at creating tension. That, that of course, is the Lord Jesus. How did Jesus most often respond to a very direct question, either with a question most of the time, or he would say, you know, let me tell you a story. The kingdom of heaven is like, and he would go on and tell a story. And so he created a lot of tension. Um, I love the, uh, there's one exchange where the religious leaders come to him and they say very pointedly, hey, by what authority are you doing these things you're doing? And Jesus says to them, he doesn't answer the question, he says, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they say, uh, we don't know. And Jesus says, well, I'm not going to tell you the answer then. So he's, he creates all this tension. Um, you know, one person, you, you remember one time a, a guy came up to him and said, good teacher, what, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? You think if there's ever an occasion, right, for a very direct answer, what does he say? Why do you call me good? <laughs> so Jesus was doing these things all the time. So uh, before we do that, though, uh, before we launch into it, I'm going to start with a quiz. So if you have a phone a device, a pen, if you don't like to use your devices. This is, these are eight statements that I'm going to ask you to mark true or false to. This comes out of the book, uh, the, the so-called Forgiveness Quiz, um, which is out of the introduction to Chris Braun's book, uh, Unpacking Forgiveness, which is a terrific book, uh, Biblical Answers for Complex Questions and Deep Wounds. And when people ask me for a single resource on forgiveness, this is the first one that I go to every time. Um, but here, here we go. Just mark true or false, and then I'll, I'll go through all eight. I'll give you about 10 seconds on each, and I'll come back, and I'll give you the answer as a way to set this up. Just It'll give you an idea of kind of where you are in your understanding of the forgiveness. Number one, where deep wounds between people are concerned, forgiveness can be unpacked in a moment. Of course, that's an easy one. Uh, they get a little more difficult. Uh, number two, personal happiness and joy can legitimately motivate people to live out what the Bible teaches about forgiveness, true or false. Uh, number three, most Christian pastors and counselors agree about what forgiveness is and how it should take place. Number four, everybody... Uh, Keeping up here? Okay, number four. Forgiveness occurs properly only when certain conditions are met. True or false? Number five. Jesus said little about how people should resolve interpersonal conflict. Number six. A willingness to forgive is a, quote, test of whether or not a person will go to heaven when he or she dies. Number seven, good people get to the bottom of all their disagreements. And the final one, number eight, there are times when it is wrong to forgive, true or false. So I'll just tell you at the outset, you're, you're probably not going to get all of these right. And the ones that you get wrong... I'm only going to have about 30 seconds to explain why they're wrong, but I am going to, I'm going to offer this theology of forgiveness, which it will at least uh, lay a foundation for answering these. So, uh, number one, um, when, where deep wounds between people are concerned, forgiveness can be unpacked in a moment. Of course, that's false. You know, this is a deep uh, area of 
study. Number two, personal happiness and joy can legitimately motivate people to live out what the Bible teaches about forgiveness. That's true. Uh, most recently, John Piper has written on this. Of course, he borrowed heavily from C.S. Lewis, who borrowed heavily from Jonathan Edwards, and so on it goes. But this idea that um, you know we are actually supposed to fight for joy, pursue joy, the problem then comes in where we're actually seeking that joy. But actually, the pursuit of joy is not a wrong thing, and the pursuit of joy in the forg- in forgiveness is actually uh, is actually a good thing and a motivator uh, to forgive. Number three. Uh, most Christian pastors and counselors agree what forgiveness is and how it should take place. That's that's false. Uh, number four, forgiveness occurs properly only when certain conditions are met. That's actually true. And the condition would be what? Repentance. And we're going to get into that in just a moment. Uh, number five, Jesus said little about how people should resolve interpersonal conflict. Um, that's false. A willingness to forgive is a, quote, test of whether or not a person will go to heaven when he or she dies. That's true. And we talked about that. We, we spent 38 minutes on this. and We looked at the last part of the Lord's Prayer. So um, it's not as though uh, you have to forgive or, or work or do something to get into heaven. But a person who's been forgiven then in, demonstrates that by the way that he or she forgives. Uh, number seven, good people get to the bottom of all their disagreements. That's false. Uh, Romans 12, a passage I've used a thousand times in counseling situations. Um, as far as that depends on you, live peaceably with all. And implied in that is some people won't live at peace with you, right? Some people will not live at peace with you. So our responsibility is to do as far as it depends on us. Uh, number eight, there are times when it is wrong to forgive. That's true, but it's a bit of a trick question, right? It's never wrong. In fact, we're always commanded to extend forgiveness. We're always commanded to offer forgiveness. We're always commanded to to be pursuing in order to forgive. But we cannot grant forgiveness, right, unless repentance takes place. And I want to spend the rest of the time kind of fleshing that out. So um, Colossians 1 is where we're going to be for this uh, next few minutes. And I think I think, yeah, I think uh, Josh has all this for us on the screen uh, with Jesse operating the controls tonight. Um, and so I'll get to that in just a moment. But let me just say this. I think the whole idea of the whole concept of forgiveness um, has really fallen on hard times, uh, by which I mean, I think the whole, I think the doctor, the doctor fills of the world have hijacked our understanding of forgiveness. And we now have a very therapeutic notion versus what I would say a biblical theological notion. And I'm not a person who's against all therapy or, or, or anything like that. But I do think, um, and I, mean, I think many people have been helped by therapy, you know, of course, that's Christ-centered, gospel-soaked, and so on. Uh, but so much of secular therapy is, is of course, very me-centered, very privatized, very individualized. Um, it has to do with feelings. It's motivated by self-interest and, and what's going to help me, what's going to help me uh, gain freedom, heal me, whatever. But any, any idea of forgiveness that deals with healing ourselves or forgiving ourselves or, God forbid, in the case of some uh, Rabbi Kushner, forgiving God, anything that, that has to do with that notion uh, misses the mark very, very badly. Uh, true forgiveness is about being healed, restored, reconciled, but it's about healed, being healed by God in and through specific practices. So um, there's a place for 
again, you know, therapy, even therapy as it relates to dealing with how to forgive, as long as it's Bible-based, gospel-driven, and so on. But as one theologian puts it, Christians have allowed a therapeutic mindset to overtake Christian claims and Christian practices. As a result, Christians have failed to appropriate psychological insights critically, all too often adopting distorting and reductionistic practices that trivialize those central Christian claims and practices. And here's what this actually has resulted in. So here's the... Here's the, the practical sort of application of this. What happens is now we talk about personal healing rather than, for example, the glory of God, the purity of the bride of Christ. Uh, and now we talk about we celebrate progress over repentance. So perhaps a person has never repented, but they're behaving better. We celebrate that. Now we accept uh, regret over Contrition, it's a Second Corinthians 7, uh, worldly sorrow over godly sorrow. You don't have to be truly broken over your sin as long as you show a little regret. Um, so we have men who are unfaithful to their wives whom we never call to repentance. We just ask, ask that they clean up their act. Uh, we have employers who mistreat their employees. They're never instructed to confess and apologize, but instead only to make financial restitution. Parents who sin against their children and vice versa, who are not guided to repentance, but instead just instructed to make it up somehow. Um, we have pastors who fall, fail morally. We never require that they repent and, and seek forgiveness from the ones they've offended, the congregation they lead. We only ask that they get counseling. And so this is all a sort of therapeutic uh, notion of forgiveness. And yet as followers of Christ, we have to begin with this presupposition, of course, that God created us called a biblical anthropology. We understand how we're made. God knows us better than anyone else is the one who made us. And he also, of course, is the one who determines and defines what forgiveness is. So what does God say? Look at Colossians 1, uh, verses 13 and 14. It says this, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, and then verse 14, in whom we have redemption, comma, the forgiveness of sins. Now, I've learned over the years, and I've gotten better at this. I used to be, every, every seminary student knows everything. And so when you first come out of seminary, you know, you want to show off all you know. And I used to do a lot of Greek stuff and Greek grammar and syntax and etymology and all that stuff. And I try to do less of that, but sometimes it is important. And here, this phrase uh, in Colossians 1, the phrase in whom we have redemption, in terms of the Greek grammar, is what we call in apposition to the phrase, the forgiveness of sins. What that means is that we could read the comma there, uh, you can insert the comma with the phrase namely or which is. So, for example, we could say in whom we have redemption, namely the forgiveness of sins. So, I don't, we don't usually have visitors on Wednesday nights as far as I know, but if you were if after the, this uh, discussion, someone came up to you and said, hey, if I walk out those doors, what building will I run into? And you, you might answer, you might say, the Family Life Center, the gym. And what you're saying there is the Family Life Center, which is the gym, right? You can also do that. You can also look at phrases in apposition by even putting an equal sign in there. So in other words, here's what we see. Redemption is 
the forgiveness of sins, and the other way around, forgiveness is redemption. So here's what, what I want to help you see there with the equal sign. Forgiveness equals redemption. And this is exactly what Paul's saying in, in uh, Colossians chapter 1. Uh, we read the same thing in the book of Ephesians. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. And so forgiveness equals redemption. What is redemption? Well, you know, redemption is one of the most important concepts of the Bible, and redemption has to do with being bought out of enslavement. So, you know, when the, when the scriptures were written, people be, could become enslaved in any variety of ways. You could be enslaved through financial hardship. You could be enslaved uh, by being sold by your own family, your own parents into slavery, which happened sometimes. You could be enslaved by birth. So some people were born into slavery. Uh, you could be, uh, and sometimes people would actually, uh, you know, as I mentioned, kind of sell their own families into slavery. And the only way you could gain freedom once that happened was to be for another person to actually pay the price for you to be rescued out of bondage. So redemption refers to the purchase of freedom. Let me define it a different way in light of that explanation. Forgiveness equals the liberation from a debt. This is what it is in the scripture. It means, it means being pardoned from a debt, being released from a debt. Now, of course, we're not enslaved in the ways that I just described. I don't, I mean, no one that I know is a slave in that sense, but we are enslaved at conception, at birth, we're enslaved to sin. And this is why the Bible, when the Bible talks about forgiveness, uh, a metaphor that the Bible uses over and over is of a debt, right? You've been freed from a debt. Um, and what happens is because God is holy and perfect and right and just. He made us for himself. And because he's our creator and we're the created ones, we have an obligation to do what he says. In fact, we have an obligation to obey him in every single way, everything we do. And when we fail to do that, which we do all the time, we incur a moral debt, not a financial de debt, not even uh, a legal debt necessarily, but a moral debt. And so we end up then being, we being in debt to God. And every we say it this way: every sin incurs a debt, and every debt demands a payment. And even though God offers forgiveness freely, He makes it available at great cost to Himself. Of course, sent His Son to pay the penalty for our sins, motivated by His love, His mercy, His grace. He sent His Son for us as the payment, right, for our sins. Now, the Bible also talks about, uh, let me just, let me illustrate this, Colossians chapter 2, uh, Jesse, Colossians 2, 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So, Forgiveness equals redemption, the liberation from a debt. And this is what God does to us, for us when we put our faith in him, when we trust in the work that was done on our behalf. So here's how we would, I would define the forgiveness of God, and, and we'll, make, we'll take it down to the horizontal level. God's forgiveness is a transaction by which the one true God graciously pardons 
those who repent and believe and thereby reconciles them to himself. So what that means is if, if, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you've turned from your own sins, your self-salvation projects, your sin, your independence, you put your faith in Jesus, believing on him for forgiveness and salvation, God forgives you and you are forever declared forgiven. So before you do anything in the morning, before you go anywhere, accomplish anything, you already are forgiven. That is your position in Christ. You are forgiven. The once-for-all transaction of the God-man uh, suffering on the cross that satisfied the debt we owed, and so we're, forgi we're, we're forgiven. So we don't have to try to pay God back. We don't have to try to make it up to God. Uh, we don't have to worry about God's disposition toward us. And the thing is, the whole concept of debt is actually applied horizontally as well. So because we were created to serve each other, love each other in sinless harmony, every time we sin against someone else, we actually incur a moral debt against them. Remember when jo Joseph's brother sold, him, sold uh, him into slavery, and the whole story is finally playing out. They're really worried about this. They go to their father, Jacob, and Jacob, the boy's father, instructed them. He said, when you get to Joseph, say this. Please forgive the debts of your brothers. That's a, a reference to the moral debt, the offenses against him. I already mentioned when the disciples uh, asked Jesus to pray, he said, pray this way, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So again, it's a moral debt. When we sin against another person, we incur a debt against them. Someone sins against us, they incur a debt against us. And when the person who sins against us repents, we cancel that debt owed to them by us, which is forgiveness. So in following the Lord's example, instructed us to forgive others, even as Christ has forgiven us, we liberate the person from the debt who sinned against us. The debt's wiped out. So I got, I'm going to run through three points here really quickly and try to explain this further, and then I'll leave three or four minutes for questions. So here's the first point. Forgiveness is a transaction by which an offended person pardons a repentant offender, is thereby, is thereby reconciled to him or her. So this is why, you know, I, I, the one question that, and I've taught on this, I did an eight-week series, I led staff through this book one time, I led elders through a discussion on forgiveness. The biggest thing that always comes up is this, this issue with, should we, does a, is repentance necessary? In other words, can't we just say, I just forgive you and forgive everybody, whatever, and we have to look at, over and over, we see in the Scripture, we forgive even as God in Christ has forgiven us. And we have to ask the question, does God forgive the unrepentant? And we know that he doesn't, right? Otherwise, you have to be a universalist if you say God forgives the unrepentant. Then everybody gets God's forgiveness. And nobody wants to go down that road. So it's a transaction. Uh, Ken Sandy, who's written a book called The Peacemaker, a great book on conflict resolution, um, he says, a person makes five, four or five commitments when they actually release that debt. They say, I'm granting you forgiveness. One is, I will not dwell on this incident. So I'm not going to dwell on it. Uh, a second commitment is, I will not bring this up uh, incident up again and use it against you. So one of the things we're doing when we release that debt against us is we're saying, I'm not going to dwell on it, and I'm not going to bring this up again against you. That's a second thing. A third one is we say, I will not talk to others about this incident. If you forgive someone, if someone comes to you, they wrong you, they repent, I'm sorry, please forgive me, 
you extend forgiveness to them, you are then relinquishing the right. That's you really you didn't really have a right to begin with, but you're but what you're saying is, I'm not gonna go talk to other people about this. I'm not talking to other people about this. I'm not gonna dwell on it, I'm not gonna bring it up against you, I'm not gonna talk to others. Number four, I will not let this incident stand between us or hinder our relationship. And the fifth one would be, I will not seek revenge. So these are the commitments we make when we forgive, when we release that debt. I'm not going to bring this up. I'm not going to dwell on it. I'm not going to hold it against you. I'm not going to tell other people about it, and I will not let it come between us. Right? I will not let it, let, it, let it destroy our relationship. Now, the fact that there's when, when we are forgiven by God in Christ, we are, there's no condemnation against us, Romans 8, right, 1 through 3. So we're not, we're no longer, there's no condemnation against us. But we have to say this, the fact that there's no vertical condemnation does not mean that there aren't horizontal consequences. So you, you, even though you're, you're no longer under God's condemnation, you're free from that, you're forgiven, the debt is released, there still may be and likely will be consequences, Right? Horizontal consequences. So, um, and that's not a lack of grace either. Some people feel like, you know, well, grace just means, grace doesn't mean we just say, anybody does whatever they want to do, and we just say, oh, you're great. No, we still have to, uh, in fact, Paul tells, tells us, uh, tells Titus, it's grace that teaches us, right, to live in righteousness and so on. So, uh, those are sort of the, the commitments we make. Um, now, that brings up the question, how do we actually do this? Well, let me go to the preceding section in Colossians chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 6. Uh, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing as it also does among you, believers, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. So it's the preaching of the God, it's the, it's the intake of the gospel that allows us, enables us to forgive. So here, here's the second point here is the starting point for forgiveness is a deep and growing understanding of the gospel of grace. This is where we have to start, is the recognition of our own sinfulness, our own hopelessness, our own brokenness, and God's abundant forgiveness free to us at great cost to himself as he sent his son so that we could be forgiven. The only way that a person who has been abandoned, the only way that a person who has been betrayed, cheated on, uh, stolen from, physically abused, sexually abused, harmed in any way, the only way that person is ever going to be able to forgive is starting with who we are, who God is, and the, and the length to which he went to save us, the cost that he paid for us. Now, it's not just, though, sort of, it, it is rehearsing this, but it's not simply rehearsing this truth in our minds. It's more than that. Um, but again, I think, again, we have to start out with just how bad we were when Jesus saved us. 
and then also understanding how much we have been loved in spite of our sinfulness, in spite of our brokenness, and then that's the one, that's one way that helps us. And also, of course, the realization that we constantly sin. One of the things that we're going to start this Sunday here at Capshaw is the regular recitation of catechism. And this is, and I'll talk more about this, and I'm not, I'm not going to, I won't bore you by making you hear this twice, but I'll talk about this on Sunday. It's not a Roman Catholic thing. It's not a Lutheran thing. It's an evangelical thing. And that is catechism, this Greek word catechesis, which just means to teach by, by way of question and answers. So we're going we're gonna to be doing questions and answers in the service as a way to sort of drive home and sort of burn in our memory some of these very, you know, key uh, foundational theological truths. But in, in the Westminster Catechism, Question 82 says this, is any man able perfectly to keep the commandments of God? Here's the answer. No mere man since the fall is able in this life perfectly to keep the commandments of God. And then listen to this phrase, but does daily break them in thought, word, and deed. So it's only by that recognition, again, the forgiveness that we have received in the context of the one against whom we have sinned, a holy and perfect God, that can, we, we can even begin to forgive. So I've had the very difficult challenge over the years. I've, I've had to counsel people who have been sexually abused. I've had to counsel uh, countless men and women who have been betrayed. They've been, their, their respective spouses have been unfaithful. I've had to counsel... Uh, grown uh, adults who, who have been abandoned by their parents and are still wrestling with, and the list goes on and on. And the only way anybody can even begin to get to the point of a willingness to forgive is by understanding, experiencing something of the forgiveness that they've actually received in Christ Jesus. So that's the starting point, right? Um, and, and, and again, it's not, it's not as though, okay, we, we were unbelievers God miraculously saved us, and then all, and then now we just sort of live these perfect lives. We all know better, right? Romans 7 is actually the story of the regenerate apostle Paul who says, why is it that I keep doing all the things I don't want to do? Why is it that I can't continue to do the things I want to do? And that's because of the baggage of the flesh, the residue of the flesh, that even though we are undoubtedly a new creation in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, we still have these sinful, selfish, wicked desires which are brought on by indwelling sin, the residue of sin that hangs on to us in our humanness. And so, and yet, despite our constant rebellion, despite our constant uh, disobedience and self-centeredness, God forgives us. We stand completely forgiven by God. And the more that we understand, again, all that we've been forgiven, it actually fuels and helps to enable our desire to forgive. I've got about five stories on this, but let me just tell you one for the sake of time. I love this story so much. Uh, you've heard of Michael Vick, who was a football player, right? Uh, played quarterback for the Eagles and the Falcons. He was the Falcons, right, for a while. And um, so when toward the, I think this was his last year or second to last year, he's playing for the Eagles and there's a, there's a guy on the team. So Michael Vick is an African-American. And there's a guy on the team by the name of Riley Cooper who is, who's a, a white man. 
And Riley Cooper was out at a country music concert, which was his first mistake. But he's out, uh, I don't know who's seeing, Luke Bryan or somebody, you know, Travis Tritt or somebody. And uh, those are the only two country names I know. And so he's at this concert, and, and, and somebody, and, he, and he's using, he uses the N-word repeatedly. In fact, in, in a bit of a drunken stupor, calls out all the N-words in the audience. Somebody gets this on their cell phone and records it by, on video. So, of course, it gets out, and, and then all of a sudden, uh, you know, Riley Cooper is an absolute pariah in the locker room. And um, most of the team, you know, I don't know, 80% of the team is made up of African Americans. And some of them want to kill him. Some of them want to fight him. Some of them shove him up against a locker. I mean, they're, they're going to destroy this guy, you know, for this drunken, stupid, you know, ungodly uh, rant. And so right when it reaches a crescendo and Riley Cooper's about ready to meet his end, at least uh, presumably, uh, Michael Vick steps forward, again, being an African-American, and says, he says, look, this is my brother right here. This is my brother. And uh, he said, look, he said, I've already forgiven him. He's, you know, I, I'm, I'm ready to forgive him. Now, maybe his theology wasn't right, but he said, I've already forgiven him. I, I'm not going to hold this against him. I'm not going to. And so the, he was able, Michael Vick was able to get the rest of the guys on board. And, say, and Michael Vick's argument was, which of you hasn't done something absolutely stupid and idiotic and said something wrong, whatever? Now, the reason, now, Michael Vick, you know, the reason that he was so, eager to do this is because of the forgiveness that he had received. Remember this guy, he went from the absolute pinnacle, you know, greatest athlete, greatest quarterback, and then there's the whole dog uh, fighting scandal, and he's just, he's on, you know, he's, in every, he's on every news website, and he's, you know, just being vilified, and, you know, of course what he did was terrible. But because of the forgiveness that he received, he was the first one recognizing this to go forward and say, no, listen, we can't. My, my point is the more that we understand all that we've been forgiven, the, the more ready and eager and willing we are uh, to forgive. And the, the reality is every single person who is in Christ has been forgiven much, more than we can even imagine. Now, again, it's, it's, the gospel is a starting point, but it doesn't, it's not as though we simply um, just sort of have to rehearse it over and over in some sort of mindless mantra. It's not just a thought exercise. Look at uh, verses 9 through 13 of the same chapter. Paul says, uh, So the day we heard, from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, the spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. And then Paul says, May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the endurance, all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. Again, that's right before the verse on forgiveness. He says, let me, let me give you this one quote here so I don't throw Jesse off. There's another, I love this. In our book, we're using a book called Gospel-Centered Life for this, and I like what Robert Thune, the author, says. He says, uh, our forgiveness of others is intended to mirror the forgiveness God has given us. We are to take the initiative. We are to offer forgiveness and open a door for reconciliation. But reconciliation is always contingent upon the other person's repentance. So it's not just, again, about rehearsing the gospel, although that's critical. Paul says, may you be strengthened with all power 
strengthened with all power. Now, this notion of power would have really resonated to the folks at Colossae because the first century uh, Greco-Roman world was a melting pot of gods and goddesses and all kinds of people. And people would do just about anything to gain the favor of these gods to make that connection and to receive power. Some people, you know, as you know, they would cut themselves and they would harm themselves and deny themselves of food and physical pleasure and any, everything you can imagine, right? They built temples and shrines and statues to these gods all as a way to, to appease the gods and receive power. But Paul says true power comes in an entirely different way. It comes from the God who raised Jesus from the dead. And it's not poured out by self-denial, self-mutilation, really self-anything. It is poured out through the gospel, by the Spirit, and through the means of prayer. So, it's, so here's our third point as it relates to the ability to forgive. It comes only by God's limitless power, the ability to forgive, unleashed via the gospel, poured out by the Spirit. And I'd love, some other time we'll get into Romans 5, which is just uh, such an amazing passage. The Holy Spirit pouring out the, lo- uh, the Father's love in our hearts. Poured out by the Holy Spirit through desperate prayer. So it's, it's the, it is the experience of being forgiven. It is the recognition of all that we've been forgiven by God in Christ, which, of course, begins with the bad news, you know, how wretched and, and broken and sinful we really were. And then it's that as, as we begin to under... Actually, we're, what I'm doing is I'm going all the way back to that very first diagram, which said, which had the two lines going up, and I, don't, I didn't put it in my notes this week, but a growing awareness of our own sinfulness, right, and brokenness, uh, coupled with a growing awareness of God's holiness, leads to the magnification of the cross and Christ's work. And so if you're, if you're here and you're thinking, how am I ever going to forgive? Well, again, it, it, it comes from initially, the starting point is a recognition of all you've been forgiven by God in Christ. And then the prayer for God to give you the power, the supernatural power through his spirit and by the gospel to forgive. And I know from years of pastoral ministry that some of the things, some of the way, maybe some of you in this room, I don't know, but some of the ways that you have been hurt, some of the ways that the people that I have shepherded have been hurt and have been wronged, um, it's just heart-wrenching, horrible, horrible stuff. And yet, dare I say, that no offense that we've encountered or endured is as great as our offense against God all the time, every day. And it's not, you might say, well, how can you say a lustful thought or a greedy impulse is as bad as my father sexually abusing me? I'm not saying that. But what makes it so egregious, our sin and our offense, again, is the one against whom we sin. He is perfect and he is holy and he is right. In him there is no darkness, only light. All of his ways are pure. And so every sin that we commit is heinous, horrific, egregious, whatever synonym you want to throw in there, because we're talking about a revolt against 
a holy God. And the more that we begin to understand, again, our own sinfulness and our own brokenness and the love that's been lavished on us, even in spite of that, right, the more that we're able to forgive. And again, I I think I shared this story the very first week of this series, but the most powerful example that I've ever seen to date is, you know, a woman who realizes after she's been married for five years that her husband has been sneaking out, having sex, being intimate, if you will, with, with men. So she realizes after five years of being married and her husband's been disappearing over time and where he is and so on, he's been having, uh, he's been fornicating, if you will, with other, with men. And so when I'm sitting there in their living room at five o'clock on a Friday morning and her face is puffy with tears, the only way this woman would ever get to, and by God's grace, she got there, but the only way this woman would ever get to the place where she was actually willing and able to forgive is through a supernatural realization brought on by the Holy Spirit of the forgiveness that she had received in Christ, received by God in Christ, even to the point where she said to me, I don't know if it was her fifth or sixth or seventh, whatever time that I had talked with him, she said, how could I possibly withhold forgiveness in light of all that I've been forgiven? So that's kind of how the, the, gospel, the gospel-centered life, how forgiveness has to be a regular part of uh, of that, of our rhythm. You know, we, we go to others, we confess our sins, we seek their forgiveness uh, when we wrong them, and then when they come to us and they, they, they repent, they seek our forgiveness, we grant it. And while at the same time, we're always eager, we're always offering that forgiveness, recognizing that while we can offer it, given the transactional nature of forgiveness, that transaction cannot be completed unless a person is repentant. So that's a whole lot of stuff and uh, not a lot of stories. I try to uh, include more stories than I did tonight, but there's, there's, so, um, there's so much there. Um, I do want to leave four minutes for questions. Uh, so any, any thoughts on, on anything uh, related to that? And it, certainly it's okay if you don't, but um, it's, it, it's a difficult and it's it's so it's it's so not theoretical, you know. It's not one of these things. It's like okay, I'm going to go study this in my office, and it really doesn't apply to anything. Of course not, you know. I I had I had a very good friend in recent years wrong me in in, in what I would consider to be a very terrible way. And first in my flesh. Um, I really want nothing to do with this guy. I'm just being very candid. I want nothing to do with this guy. This is a good friend of mine. And it took me about a couple of weeks to process this and uh, pray over it and whatever. And then he, he was reaching out to me, and so we, we sat down at Starbucks, and, and he just said, man, I, am, I, am, I'm, I blew it. I, I regret it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for what I did. I'm sorry for what I said. And... You know, I didn't really have to, I, I didn't have to think much about it, not because I'm so spiritual, but because the Holy Spirit just worked in a way that allowed me to forgive. And my own mother said, because I was keeping my mother, you know, of course, you know, what every grown man does, keep your mother involved in all these things. And so I was, tell, I was te- telling my mother about this, and, and it was about a month after this whole thing went down, and she said, and she's a God, she said, I don't know how, I don't know how you ever forgave him, given the depth of your friendship. And... You know, it's, it's, it's a spirit, and I, sh- I, I shouldn't have told that story 
if you're taking from that, wow, you know, what an awesome job John did of forgiving. That's not why I told it. But, but I think the point is the Holy Spirit will enable us as we come to greater and greater and greater understanding of all that we've been forgiven to forgive whatever it is.